Happy Hanukkah again. Our next teacher, Rabbi Zukir, Shoma Zukir, uh, is a smicha uh, from Yeshiva University, has learned for many years in the Kolel Elyon at Yeshiva University, um, is a doctoral candidate, almost completed his doctoral dissertation at the Yale. I guess we have YU today. We have Yeshiva University and Yale University. I guess it's all YU. Um, so the, uh, what is the precise title for your topic? I don't have it in front of me. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you all for coming and participating. Rabbi Sukir. Uh, thank you very much for my silver, uh, and uh, both for the introduction and for stealing my joke. Um, but um, uh, it's really wonderful to see everyone here today. Uh, you know, especially you know, everyone knows on the third day of Hanukkah, they often give you off work. And uh, to see everyone, uh, everyone here today to, to learn together uh, on, on their, uh, their third day of Hanukkah day off is really a wonderful, wonderful thing. And especially these issues of, of halacha and ethics, which uh, tend to get, tend to, to get overlooked uh, at times. Uh, people don't, don't, don't give enough attention, uh, maybe not as much as they should. So uh, very excited to be learning with you and also to see some familiar faces uh, from, uh, from when I was at Lincoln Square. Uh, and uh, so really looking forward to learning with you. Professor Reinhold's talk uh, focused on, on the question of the conflation. What, what do you do if something seems to be both halachic and ethical? Can it be both? Um, you know, if it's, if it's ethical, it can't be halachic. If it's halachic, uh, it can't be ethical. And uh, my colleague uh, Sarah spoke about about uh, the question about how halach can help, can help one become a more ethical person. What I'm gonna ask is whether we really, whether we really get to that point. Meaning, is there, is there really, are there really situations where halacha and ethics overlap within, within a Jewish tradition? Or maybe, uh, maybe one should just deny that. We already saw in both talks, uh, the specter of Leibovitch haunted both talks, both shirim, uh, that maybe there's, uh, there's no room for ethics within Judaism. So we're going we're gonna to take up that question more directly in this, in, this, uh, in this talk, in this shir, and we'll start with a couple of gemaras. We'll, we'll find in a couple of gemaras this idea of ethics existing outside of halacha, but somehow within Judaism more broadly. And uh, then I'll give everyone a chance to look at some of the sources. We'll jump uh, forward a couple thousand years to, or uh, a thousand and a half years to the, uh, to the modern period and, and consider some sources there as well. So that's our plan uh, for the next uh, uh, almost hour and a half. We'll start with, uh, we'll start with a, gemara, a couple of Gemaras, the Yerushalmi, uh, first, about Shimon ben Shetach. Shimon ben Shetach, uh, the historical Shimon ben Shetach, lived in the first century BCE. This Gemara depicts him uh, in, in, uh, you know, as really one of, one of the rabbis, as a proto-rabbi. We're not going to get into questions of, of historicity, but what we will do is, uh, is see this as how Chazal portray uh, their, their, you know, their, their rabbis, their Talmudi Chachamim, the way, the way a Talmud Chacham should, should behave. And this is in Bab Metziah in the context of a whole set of questions about Hashavas Aveda, returning lost objects. To whom does one have to return a lost object? Is that mitzvah only for Jews or does it apply to non-Jews as well? There's a whole discussion there. And at that point, it jumps into this story. So Shema Ben Shetah, Shimon Shetach, he, uh, he worked in flax. Right? When you ask him, what does he do? He's in flax. That's what he did. Uh, that was how he made a living. Amrin lei, Talmidoi, Rebbe, Arpi minach, Va'anan zavnin lach, Chada chamar, Ve'leisat la'isagyan. You're working very hard. Let's do you a favor. We'll buy you a donkey. It'll be a little easier for you to do your business. Okay, sounds good. Ve'azlan zavnin lei, Chada chamar, Me'chad sirkai, they went to buy him a, uh, a donkey from, you know, the, uh, the Arab trader who was there, uh, who, 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 you know, the donkey dealer. And uh, turns out it had a precious jewel around its neck, uh, so to their surprise. Us and the Gabe, they went to Shimon Shetach, their, their rabbi. Amrin lei, min kedon, leis at sarich tuvan. You know, we, we bought you the donkey. Guess what? You're never going to have to work again a day in your life. Amrlon Lama, why? You know, the donkey will make it easier, but I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be able to retire immediately. Amrinle, Zavninan la Chad Chamar, Mechad Sirkai, 
They said we bought the donkey and there's a, there's a jewel around its neck. So we're, we're in good shape. So what's his response? Amarlon viada ba mara. Does its owner, does its previous owner know that this is the case, that, that uh, this jewel was on it, that it, he, he gave this jewel sort of as a, a free, along, a for free along with the donkey? Amarlon, he didn't know that. Amarlon, Ezal Chazar, go, go back. He tell, told them, go, give back, uh, return the donkey uh, along with the jewel, or at least return the jewel to the person who sold it. So now we have a question from, uh, from the rabbis at a later period in time. This is a, several generations later. The rabbis asked in front of Rebbe. They quoted a whole bunch of, of, uh, of rabbis saying that even according to the opinion that one cannot steal from non-Jews, this is normative Jewish law, um, that it's prohibited to steal whether from Jews or from non-Jews, but even according to that opinion, it's, there's, no, there's no obligation to return a lost object. There's no obligation to return a lost object to non-Jews. So what is Shemu Manchetov doing in this story, returning lost object? There's no such halacha. He doesn't need to return this, uh, you know, this ruby that counts as a lost object. Matun, matun sovereign. Uh, so what he responds to them, matun, uh, matun sovereign, Shemu Manchetov, barbarin hava. So the response is, what do you think? Shimon ben Shetach is a, is a barbarian. I'm just going to go and, uh, you know, mislead someone, not return something that they clearly, when they clearly made a mistake. And uh, so that's his response. Or that's the, that's the response of, of the rabbis later on, interpreting the actions of Shimon ben Shetach. And the Gemara then explains, by Hava, Shimon ben Shetach, Mishma, Abrich el Kahon, Diudai, Me Agar, Kol Hadein Alma. What Shimon ben Shetach wanted to hear or uh, what, he, what he was seeking was to have, uh, to have the Gentiles say, blessed be the God of the Jews more than, or that, that, that was a hearing blessing be the God of the Jews is greater than any monetary benefit. And then it goes on to tell, tell a couple of stories how he, he knew from previous, uh, previous occasions where uh, a Jew had returned a lost object to a non-Jew, despite it not being the normative halakha. And the response was, blessed be the God of the Jews. He wanted to repeat that. And that's why, that's why he returned the, uh, the jewel in this case. So what do people think? What does this tell us? What does this tell us about the relationship between halacha and ethics? Yes? Okay. Uh, that, that definitely seems to come out of this, right? Halacha, the, the objection. He didn't have to return it. Okay, that's, halacha is the floor. It's not ob obligated by halacha, but maybe one can go above and beyond and do something ethical. And return it. Uh, other other views? Yes. Right. Maybe, and it sounds like at least from the last line, right? You can say you can compare the two lines. The line where he says, "Am I a barbarian that I wouldn't that I wouldn't give it back?" That line sounds like there's something actually wrong in not giving it back. The following line that says he wanted to hear people say, "Blessed be the God of the Jews," sounds like the real goal is uh, PR, right? PR for God. Uh, a, Jew, a Jew should be part of God's PR machine, right? So, so what exactly is the reason those two lines are in a bit of tension, right? Is it that in itself one should return a lost object to non-Jews? It's the right thing to do. Um, and, or is it more about public perception? Um, and again, I think maybe the, there's the, between the two comments, is it, would you say that Shema Meshadak would say it's obligatory to return that uh, the lost object? What do people think? From where it comes the obligation? From where it comes the obligation? If it's not the halacha, how could it be obligatory? Okay, do people disagree? Yeah. Where does the thin mishra din come in? I think it comes in with uh, the rest of the shear. So, good question. Um, okay, so so I, I think there's a tension here. On the one hand, it sounds like it's not it's not the halacha. Maybe that means it's not obligatory. Maybe that means it's not obligatory as halacha, but it can be obligatory in a different way, or maybe it's optional. Is this about an obligation in itself? Is it intrinsically right to return the object? Or is it more about God's glory? There's a lot of questions just reading this source. You can take it in a couple of, of different directions. And, and we'll see more sources that may, that may uh, clarify this further. Yes?
Okay, to what extent can we extrapolate, right, that doing something good sanctifies God's name? Not doing it may or may not, maybe he'll find out, maybe he won't find out, but not doing it might lead to a chilosha, maybe, maybe that can strengthen it if you think about the opposite. Okay, yeah, yes, sir. Uh, did you deliberately translate Akon, which refers to a pagan idol worshiper, yeah. as Gentile, and how does that affect ah. normativity uh, for our relations? Uh, okay, great. So there's, uh, I guess, I, I, if, I, if I were giving this sheer in an academic context at university, I would have noted all of the manuscripts and all the different versions. Almost always, when we have a Gemara that says the word Akum, idolaters, almost always that, was, that is a function of Christian censorship in the, in, the late, uh, in the early modern period. And the original text reads Gai. That's true uh, 99% of the time for Gemaras, for Rambams, for Shulchan Aruchs, which were systematically censored. So I guess I could, have, I could have censored back the Gemara to the original, changed it back. I like to keep the Gemara text as it is, but when you translate, you should translate with uh, the, the, original, the original translation. And, and, and in any event, this Taya, this, this Arab, um, we have no reason, to, you know, it's not clear that uh, this Arab trader with a, with a D, no reason to assume he'd be an idolater. I mean, it's not, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's, not clear from the, it's not clear from the story at least. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Still not clear um, that he'd be. But yeah, but, so let's assume that our question relates to non-Jews in general. That, that's, that seems to be the, uh, the content of the discussion here. So as was noted, there's some tensions in the source. It's not fully clear. Let's jump to the next source. Uh, now this is the Gemara the Bavli. So the Aramaic, for those, who, for those who study Gemara, the Aramaic might be a bit more, uh, you might be a, a bit more familiar. The Gemara here is about to tell a story of also about a donkey. This wasn't intentional. Sorry, it just came out this way. The donkey of, of, uh, of Pinchas ben Yair. Pinchas ben Yair who had this donkey who had these amazing stories involving him. We're going to focus on the beginning of the story before we get fully into, uh, into the thick uh, with, with the donkey. But um, so let, let's, let's jump in. Source two. Hashda be'emtan shal tzadikim. mevi takala al yadan. Tzadikim atzman lo So the Gemara has this line earlier. It says, God would never let something bad come about through the righteous, and even and, uh, even for the animals of the righteous, something bad can't happen. So uh, all the more so for the righteous themselves. And then it tells this story. My What are these? What does it mean? The animals of the righteous, bad things don't happen. So it has this story. Pinchas ben Yair was going to redeem captives. This is uh, you know a Jewish obligation. Uh, and maybe a moral one too, but that, we're not going into that now. But uh, to redeem to redeem those who are captured when they're unjustly uh, captured, as as is often the case, to try to uh, get them uh, out of captivity. He ran into the Ginai River on the way. He, you know, in rivers back then, uh, you know, if you're traveling, you don't have a road. The river gets uh, gets wide. It's hard to pass. So how does he get through? He said, Ginai, Mr. River. Please split for me and allow me to pass. Amarle, the river responds. And actually, some of the commentaries say, did the river actually respond or is it in his head? Let's assume he's responding on behalf of the river, uh, making a counter argument. Amarle, you're doing the will of your, uh, of your creator. You're following God's will by trying to redeem these captives. I'm doing God's will by running like water, because I'm water, I'm a river, that's what I do. I run. So I'm doing God's will as well. Ata, suffix ose, suffix yata ose. You may or may not be successful, right? It depends how the negotiations go. Ani, vadai ose. I'm being, I know I'm going to be successful. When I run, I succeed immediately. So that's the river doesn't want to split. Amarle, ima yata cholek, goes rani alecha shelo yavru maim laolam. So, you know, when you try reasoning with someone and it doesn't work, uh, one approach is to then threaten them. I'm not, this is not advice, uh, just a fact of human nature. So, um, so he says, if you don't split, I'm going to dec uh, decree that you never have water again. Right? I'll uh, somehow, uh, you know, with, with some magical power, we'll block you up. That worked. The river uh, understood, understood the threat and decided to split to allow, uh, to allow uh, uh, Pinchas Ben Yari through. Fine, so far so good. Havahu gavra the havadari chite lepischa. A certain person was bringing some wheat 
for Pesach. He was going to make matzah with his wheat. He was trying to bring it from one place to another. Amar lei, so Pechas ben Yari says, Chalok lei nami lahai mitzvah asik. So, you know, river, please split for this fellow as well because he's going to do a mitzvah. He deserves a, a split river too. Chalok uh, lei, and the river split for him. Havahu taya delava behadaihu. There also happened to be, again, another Arab trader who was, uh, who was along with this, this uh, matzah, matzah baker fellow who was traveling along with him. Back then, you know, fellow travelers, people would travel in groups because it was safer uh, and, and, and for a variety of reasons. So he was traveling along with him. Amar le chalok le nami lahai. Chalok le nami lahai. So Pinchas ben Yar says to the river, split for this third fellow too, right? Uh, not, you know, not doing any mitzvah, not even Jewish. Split for him too. Why? Delo lema kach osim livnei levaya. So people shouldn't say, this is what you do to your traveling companions. You leave them behind. So that, that's wrong. There's something wrong about that. Uh, so you can't, don't leave them behind. And, and he's willing to go so far as to ask the river to go against its nature, to go against its fulfilling God's will and perform this miracle of splitting in order to allow not only the fellow with, with baking the matzah, but also his traveling companion to go through Chalakle. The river split for them. And then the Gemara remarks, the Rav Yosef remarks, how great Pinchas ben Yar is, this person is greater than Moshe and the 600,000 when they left Egypt. Why? The Ilu Hasam Chadzimna, right? The, uh, the Reed Sea split once for Moshe. And then here it split three times. So he's even better than Moshe. Um, and the Dilma Hakanami Chadzimna, maybe he really only split once and he just, it just didn't close up and he told it to not close. So maybe it's only, only split once. So maybe he's only equivalent to Moshe. Still a pretty good pretty good deal, right? He comes out, comes out pretty good in this story. And the continuation where finally gets, you may be wondering, like, what, what's the story with the donkey, right? So we're not going to see it inside, but the, uh, the, make a long story short, the donkey doesn't eat food that doesn't have tithe taken off. It doesn't have truma taken off. It was, uh, and he could tell, he had some, some uh, sense. He could tell whether the, uh, the you know, the, the food was, was good, good to be eaten or not. So in this story, what exactly is the, what's the, What's the basis for having this river split? So, again, I think there's two different ways of taking this as well. On the one hand, you could say, you know, it's just the right thing to do. If people are traveling and they have someone traveling with them, even if, you know, really one person deserves to have a river split because they're doing a mitzvah, the other one doesn't, you don't leave someone behind, right? You don't leave a, you don't leave a person behind. Uh, that's not what you do. Apparently, seals don't do it, and... Uh, and rabbis don't do it either. It's just not the right thing to do. But uh, right on the other hand, what 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 could one counter to that reading? Yeah. Right here again, it's a delo lema. They shouldn't say. Well, why is he so worried about what people say? Just say this is the right thing to do. So I'm going to do it. So both of these both of these cases in the Gemara and they echo each other in certain ways have that question, is, is, is the person doing the, what seems to be the ethical thing, although not, not necessarily the halachic thing, or not something that, that's dictated by halacha, is he, do, is, is he doing it, Pinchas ben or Shimon Shetach, are they doing it because uh, it's the right thing to do in, intrinsically, or are they doing it because they're worried about, about what people might say? It's somewhat of an open question. Um, for, those, for those who are interested in, in the, sort of like the more technical philosophical side of ethics, you might say that uh, certain, on certain accounts of, of, uh, of ethics, really, you know, uh, maybe all ethics is based on what the observer would say, right? If someone's seeing the situation would say, this is the right thing to do, maybe that's why all of ethics is binding. It's the right thing to do because the impartial observer, the ideal impartial observer would say, this is the right thing to do. So maybe we can uh, assume that Shimon Meshetach and Pechas Ben Yair were, were uh, philosophers and, uh, and had that understanding, or maybe, you know, there's some intuitive basis to that as well. But it's at least an open question. Are we talking about here about ethics per se? Or are we talking about, about uh, you know, PR, about making sure to do the thing that looks right, even if it's not necessarily the right thing to do inherently? That's, that's a question. And we'll see, um, we'll see to the extent that there's a dispute about this. And later interpreters, they presumably read the Gemara one way or the other. Source number three, the, uh, the base of here, the Me'iri, um, a Maimonidean Talmudist and philosopher, so we're not going to read it inside, but one of the things he emphasizes in his comment, he calls this, This isn't, uh, in, in the second story, this isn't something that everyone has to do, but this is the right thing, this is the thing that Torah scholars generally do. 
So it's interesting, he emphasizes that it's, you know, it, it may be for asking for, if it's a question of whether this is something that's expected of everyone or something that uh, people, you know, some people are, can go above and beyond, it's the floor, not the ceiling, halakha, the floor, not the ceiling, ethics can be, it may, may be not binding, but something greater, you could read that in, into here, that this is, you know, because Pinkos Benyari is a Torah scholar, he's supposed to do, he's expected to do more. Um, you don't have to read it that way, but that's at least one reading. Well, let's take a look now at uh, a couple of, of a couple of verses and uh, Sifriya Medrash that, uh, that maybe talk about this in a more systematic way, right? Seeing stories, stories can always uh, illustrate and give you a certain insight, but they don't always, uh, they're not as sharp necessarily as, as uh, the legal passages. So we'll, we'll, we'll supplement here, we're starting with source number four. Uh, you know, this is one of Moshe's speeches towards the end of his life. Guard and keep all of the things I command you. In order that it be good for you and your progeny forever. Because you do what is right and what is good, or what is good and what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God, in the eyes of Hashem. So the, the Medrash, this fray here, seizes on this, this double language, hatov v'hayashar, um, right? It could just be repetition. The Sifrei thinks maybe it's something else. So uh, source number five, kisa se hatov v'hayashar, hatov v'hinei shamayim. Good means good in the eyes of heaven. V'hayashar v'hinei adam. And that which is, is right, that which is straight, in the eyes of, of people. Divri Rabbi Akiva. That's your Akiva's understanding. V'chein hu omer, unsa chein v'seichal tov v'hinei elokim v'adam find favor and uh, good reason in the eyes of God and of people. Rabbi Yishmael Omer, Hayashar Beinei Shammai. Rabbi Yishmael says, nope, it's both in God's eyes. Do what's right in God's eyes, do what's good in God's eyes. There's nothing about people here. But uh, uh, if we are to take Rabbi Akiva, and we, we generally follow Rabbi Akiva, what, what's he suggesting here? What's, what's Moshe's speech asserting? What, what do we need to do uh, to be good Jews? What are our obligations? We need to fulfill two things, both what God sees as right and what, right, and what uh, Adam, what people think is, is right, which presumably, you know, assuming ethics correlates more or less with what people think is right, that should include, that should include ethics as well. That's what the Pasuk says. That's where Rikiva, how Rikiva interprets the Pasuk. And we have a similar, a similar verse in source number six, and this source, is, uh, is interpreted and applied to the context of Lifnim Mishras Adin in, in a couple of different contexts of going uh, Lifnim Mishras Adin. Well, just a quick word about the translation of this. How, well, let's first, let's pull the audience. How do we translate Lifnim Mishras Adin? Beyond the letter of the law. That's the most common, that's the most common translation. Let's take a hyper-literal translation. Within the line of the law. Right? Uh, so so what, what's, all, what's that all about? So first of all, um, I, I, I personally try to avoid talking about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law within halacha because there's a little bit of a history to the term. Does anyone know where the term is from? Hmm? Paul. Paul. And does Paul think that the letter of the law is a good thing? Not so much. It's part of his critique of, uh, you know, of, of Judaism as practiced by, let's say, the Pharisees and then the rabbis. So, you know, of course, of course Judaism is not just about the technical interpretation of the law. Of course, there are values beyond that, but I, I generally try to avoid talking about the letter and the spirit. And especially in this context, what, what's, the, what's the metaphor here? Why is there a line of the law? So the metaphor here, with, you're going within the line of the law. You're not going beyond, you're going within. So the metaphor is, let's say, um, you know, you think about it like a field, right? So you have a field, you have your territory and you have the other person's territory. And uh, going up, you know, wherever your, your line is, you're allowed to, you sort of can inhabit that area. If you, go, if you go within the line, you take a step back, you're saying, yes, I can be here, but I'm yielding it to you. So, if, so let's say in the, case of, in the case of returning the lost object, returning the jewel. I could keep this in terms of, let's say, uh, the letter of the law, if we, if we use that term, or it's within the line of the law, using the, the literal metaphor, it's within the line of the law to keep the jewel, because there's no... There's no obligation to return it, but I'm going to go within the line of the law. I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to yield to you. I'm going to let you have back the, your lost object um, because even though it's not obligatory as halakha, maybe it's the right thing to do as lifnim mishuras hadin. So that, there's a whole literature on that, which 
uh, which I think we're gonna we're gonna see in just a couple of minutes. I think let, let's just check how much time we have, and uh, I think we're gonna split up for for let's say for 20 minutes. We'll split up. We will be looking at. You can look at source number seven if you want, but the there's a, a, a fairly lengthy a, a section on Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein's position. He was a, 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 a beloved teacher of mine, passed away a few years ago, and uh, has probably the most important, uh, at least English language, article on, on this issue, on uh, Judaism and, and, and an ethic outside of halacha and how to understand that. So we have uh, some, some passages from his, uh, from his approach and some additional passages after that. See what you can get through with your tables. We're definitely not going to get through everything when we reconvene, but at least you'll have, uh, you'll have a Hanukkah present uh, from me, the, uh, the, the handout, which you can look at at Peru's at your leisure. Um, so yeah, we'll do that now for the next 20 minutes uh, with either a partner or your table. Uh, consider, consider the sources primarily from eight and forward. All right. Uh, as, as sad as I am to take you away from uh, your conversations, I think we're reconvening now. So just uh, first a word, a word on, on uh, Rav Lichtenstein, I said, was my teacher. So he was primarily a Rosh Yeshiva. He spent his nights and days studying and teaching uh, Talmud, at, first at YU and then Yeshivat Haaretzion in Israel. On the side, I like to say he had, uh, you know, in his spare time, he was a one-man think tank. So he has these very well-thought-out uh, programmatic articles on a whole host of topics. Maybe one of the first ones and also one of the best-known ones is this article on uh, cited extensively in, in number 11, does Jewish tradition recognize an ethic independent of halacha? So we'll, we'll be spending a little bit of time on that. Just before we get there, um, source number eight, you know, this, this idea, we're, we're discussing ethics within religion. This is not to mean that ethics outside of religion isn't also valuable. Of course, Rav mm Lichtenstein -hmm. uh, valued that as well, but his position is gonna be that the source of ethics is not some external thing, to Judaism, it's part of, part of Judaism itself dictates that one be ethical, even if those ethical points can't be found explicitly in any particular halacha. And sources nine and 10 situate this, uh, this, uh, the, the piece we're about to look at, both that it's the most, the most cited article and that it's, uh, you know, sort of the setting it was in, uh, a, ser a conference on ethics in 1972, published a couple years later, but uh, if, if we're going to jump in now, for reasons of time, we'll jump in at source number 11. Citations from the article itself, and uh, everyone's invited to read the entire piece when they have a chance, but we'll try to get the main points out of the article. Rav Lichtenstein starts by, by thinking about the quest questions of natural morality. And there are a few Gemaras that may support this view, that somehow baked into nature, baked into the way the world is created, God made us ethical. So... For example, the fact that we have an impulse to be ethical much of the time, that might be, that might be God's way of you know, formula formulating the world such that ethics is assumed and ethics is mandatory. So there, as I said, there's some Gemara sources that indicate uh, that, that possibility. And Rav Lichtenstein's response is, but let's say that's true. Let's say that's, there is some natural basis. Uh, one could respond that when the Torah was given at, at Harsinai, the Gemara says this, and this is codified, all previous obligations were sort of wiped away, and the Torah is the, one, is the single binding document of the Jewish people. So maybe, you know, you might even say non-Jews are bound by natural morality, but Jews, by virtue of the fact that the Torah was given at Harsinai, that sort of reset everything. Everything is now, has to be a function of the Torah and of commandment. And if you, if you know Rebbe Lichtenstein's thought, the idea of commandment, the idea of God as a commander, uh, as, as the one who gave the Torah and, and uh, all the mitzvot, all the commandments that are a part of it, that's really a central theme. So that, even if you accepted natural morality, it wouldn't yield the conclusion that part of Judaism is, is, being, uh, is being ethical. So we'll start with that here uh, at the top of, of the page. The question is not what vest vestiges of natural morality continue to bind the Jew, or to what extent receiving the Torah abrogated any antecedent ethic. So that, that, that's, uh, with that being said, there's, now you can ask the following question. It is rather whether, quite apart from the ground common to natural and halachic morality, the demands and guidelines of halacha are both so definitive and so comprehensive as to preclude the necessity for any other ethic. Meaning, let's assume that natural morality is, is superseded by halacha. Does that mean that halacha itself is sufficient? 
and we're, we're going to clarify what that means. But, but uh, as we go forward, just continue reading, I am, of course, uh, taking two things for granted. I assume first that halacha constitutes, or at least contains, an ethical system. Right? Halacha is not just a bunch of empty things that one should do just because one's commanded to do them. Halakha actually represents values, represents ethical principles, even if they don't fully overlap with, or at least the formulated Torah doesn't uh, overlap fully with what we would see as ethical, uh, maybe in intuitively. Second, I assume that at most, we can only speak of a complement to halakha, not of an alternative. Right? You can't say, let's get rid of the Torah and do something else. That's not an option on the table. And ethics so independent of halakha, so as to obviate or override it, clearly lies beyond our pale. And with these two assumptions, what two views is Rav Lichtenstein sort of setting aside as out beyond, the, beyond uh, his, his scope? Sure. One that views halacha as, as not ethical, as sort of empty commands? Sure. Whose view is that? Leibovitch, right? We, and we heard, about, we heard about Leibovitch a little bit today. And the second approach, that have some sort of, some sort of replacement to halacha that, that's rejected, what would that look like? Well, I think within a Jewish context, so, you know, there are, there are uh, some, some approaches to Judaism that say halacha is no longer binding or never was binding or isn't binding. So that's also out of bounds. So, and we'll see, and once we're got done through, going through this uh, source, we'll look at some of those alternatives at least uh, quickly. So that set aside, we're halacha is binding and halacha represents values. Now the question is, what about other values that are not in the halacha? Are they binding as well? And if so, how? Essentially then, continuing inside, the question is whether halacha is self-sufficient. If all you have is halacha, and let's assume that means the halacha and the shulchanar, you open up Jewish legal code, you open up uh, a sfarim, Jewish legal books, you can find all the answers. That's halacha. Is that self-sufficient? Is that enough? It's comprehensiveness and, self, and self-sufficiency uh, self uh, are notions many of us cherish in our more pietistic or publicistic moments, right? You know, it feels really from to be able to say, like, the Torah is all we need. Halacha is all we need. There's nothing, nothing beyond halacha. If, however, we equate halacha with the din, if we mean that everything can be looked up, every moral dilemma resolved by reference to code or canon, the notion is both palpably naive and patently false. So the idea that any, you know, all of ethics you, or anything you ever need to do can be found in a, in a safer, you can just look it up, and it'll tell you the halacha, and that'll always be the right thing to do ethically. That's, that's simply not true. You can quote the Chazon Ish, uh, who says that moral duties sometimes constitute one corpus with halakhic rulings, and sometimes, and sometimes not, uh, he implies. And uh, jumping ahead a couple of lines, there are moments when one must seek independent counsels. Recognition of this element rests upon both textual and practical evidence. Um, and skip a sentence. Which of us has not, at times, been made painfully aware of the ethical paucity of his legal resources. Now, this is a, this is a big move. As I said, Ruhlichensin was a Talmudist first, a, a Talmud Chacham, studied Talmud. And he's, he said, if all you have is the halacha, you sometimes will feel there's a real paucity. You feel there's, there's something missing from the whole system of halacha. Namely, sometimes something, something ethical will seem clearly true, and yet you can't find it in any halachic source. Right? This is not what your average uh, Rosh Yeshiva might say. But this is, this is an admission, a candid admission uh, by, by Rav Lichtenstein. This is something that really bothers him. Right? Within, if you just look at Allah, it seems like certain ethical principles are not there. Who has not found that the fulfillment of explicit halachic duty could fall well short of exhausting clearly felt moral responsibility? Even the full discharge of one's whole formal duty as defined by the din often appears palpably insufficient. And this is, the, this is sort of laying out the problem, right? If you come from the standpoint that halacha is all you need, you're going to find that there are sometimes gaps. There are sometimes holes and things, that, uh, and, and things that seem that like they're right, ethically, are outside. Given, given this problem, Rav Lichtenstein attempts to find within halacha, within traditional, or at least within Torah, within traditional Judaism, sources that would indicate that ethics are also part of what God expects from us, part of normative Judaism writ large, even if not part of halakha in particular. In doing this, he draws upon a Ramban, a Nachmanis commentary on the Torah, which uh, there are actually a couple of, uh, of uh, sibling pieces, one of which was in source number seven. We're not going to look at them inside, but we'll look at them as they're summarized here. 
Uh, continuing with, with the selection from page 69. In a celebrated passage, Nachmanides explains that the general command, you shall be holy, kedoshim to you, was issued because the scope of the Torah's injunctions regarding personal conduct notwithstanding, a lustful Sybarite could observe them to the letter and yet remain a scoundrel with Torah license. And Torah. So it's possible, if you, you can check off every, every mitzvah box, every halachic box, and still, uh, and still you know, live your life just indulging in, in, materia, in, in materialism at all times. You can just eat all the most expensive foods all day, have uh, multiple wives as the, as the Torah allows, uh, the biblical, biblically, and, uh, and be with them all day, right? You could just, you, you could uh, in, indulge in the world, and that, that, would, that would seem to be the wrong way to live. But what's wrong with it? You're following the halakha, right? Uh, one, one might do that. That's the, Ramban's, that's the Ramban's objection. The same holds true, he continues, with respect to social ethics. Right? You can find a lot of cases the Torah doesn't say, you know, you'll have a loophole where you can hurt someone in some way, without breaking any, any uh, halacha, you know, uh, for example, if we have our case before, not returning the, the lost jewel, right? Person's never going to know, but they're going to, or they'll find out that they lost it somehow. They're going to they're lose a lot, but there's no halacha that's broken. So maybe, that's, maybe that should be fine. Hence, there too, the Torah has formulated a broad injunction. And this is the Torah's mode, to details and then, uh, and then to generalize in a similar vein. So that's why the Torah says, Kedoshim to you, be holy. Holy meaning prushim, separate oneself from, from things, not just from materialism, but from anything that one really shouldn't be doing, even if there's no technical injunction that one can find. Uh, for after the admonition about the details of civil law and all interpersonal dealings, it says generally, and thou shalt do the right and the good, which we saw earlier. And that includes the posit- uh, as a positive command, justice and accommodation, and all lifnimi shirat hadin in order to oblige one's fellow. So the Ramban uh, invokes there this category of lifnimi shirat hadin within the line of the law. To not take advantage of everything that's legally, halakhically available to someone, but to take a step back to say, you know what? It really would be better if I let the person have the jewel back. You know what? It would really be better if I didn't just indulge in physical pleasure in my old, you know, all day and instead had other pursuits. You know what? It would be, it would be, it would be better for me to help out someone, even if it's not commanded. That's the Ramban on the Fnim uh, Mishra Sadin. And the continuation, uh, Rav Lichtenstein goes through a, a whole variety of, of Rishonim, of medieval uh, Jewish scholars, and how they categorize this commandment of the Fnim Mishra Sadin, or this concept. Because some count it as a positive commandment in the Torah. So there's an, there's an obligation to, do, to uh, do things that are not included, you know, to do what's right, even if it's not included in any other obligation. Some count it as a rabbinic uh, uh, obligation. Some don't count it at all within, within their, their scope of the mitzvot. So there's a whole discussion there. Um, if, we, if we jump back to the text, this exposition of all those commentaries, all those uh, medieval authorities, is open, and, and Rav Luchazin prefers, unsurprisingly, the positions that really categorize Lefimish uh, Rasadin, you know, giving up, what, you know, going beyond what one has to do. On, on just the legal, uh, on just the, the, the halachic obligations, he prefers the stronger formulations, ones that count it as, as a mitzvah in the Torah. If you do that, there are two obvious objections. First, if lifnim mishrat adin is indeed obligatory as an integral aspect of halacha, in what sense is it super legal? Right? If you say, right, let's, let's, uh, let's get, if you have a system of rules where one of the rules is, even if something is not included in the other rules, it's included in this rule. Right, so that, that's sort of like a self-defeating rule because is that is that rule within the system or not? Because if it is, then as soon as you say something's not within the rules, it's now it's now in this rule. So, can there be an obligation of going beyond one's obligations? And what would that even mean? So that seems to be a problem, at least a, a logical problem of sorts. What distinguishes its compulsory elements from din proper? How is the thimmishras din different than any other obligation? And it sounds like it's different. It sounds like its quality is. Being doing something super legal, doing something that's not within the law, but yet it's codified within the law. So how does that work? Um, secondly, isn't this exposition mere sham? So the whole it sort of comes out funny if you say, well, something's missing from halacha. Well, so it must be that it's actually there, and that's the conclusion. That's sort of that's like a shortcut. You're sort of cheating if you say, well, if something if something is missing and, and I think it shouldn't be missing, I'll just say it's there. What you know? What's really the basis of that? Isn't that just a sham? So. He then goes on to explicate in more detail how exactly 
this works, how exactly the system works, and to try to resolve those problems a little bit, and more also just to flesh out his own opinion. So uh, continuing inside, skipping a bit, um, he talks about the difference between din, between the law, and the fnimi din, the super legal going within the line of the law. So din consists of a body of statutes, ultimately rooted in fundamental values, but which at the moment of decision confronts the individual as a set of rules. So right, din, the law, it's a set of rules. It's of course highly differentiated, numerous variables making the relevant rule a function of the situation. The basic mode is that of formulating and defining directives uh, to be followed by in a class of cases. It has a quality of generality. And then you apply those general rules to different situations. A little bit like what we heard before uh, in the Rambam that was quoted in both of the previous talks. Um, I'm only quoting because they did, but the Rambam there talks about how law is general, therefore it can't work for everyone. Right? If, if, it's, if it's gonna be overly general, it won't necessarily work in, for every person. The same thing, it won't work in every situation because it, it'll, it'll, you know, it'll help you 95% of the time, but in that 5% of the time, the law won't accomplish its goal. Um, so metaphors that speak of laws as controlling or governing a case are therefore perfectly accurate. Fine, that's law, that's din. Lifnim mishrat din by contrast, is the sphere of contextual morality. So this is the idea. What, what does it mean that there's a law that's different, that's going beyond the law? What does that mean? It's this idea of contextual morality, the sort of thing you can't legislate, but is still binding, and, and you need to figure out on a case-by-case -case basis, as, as he's about to explicate. Its basis for decision is paradoxically both more general and more specific. So the, uh, the formalist, right, so where's, within the law, you have a specific rule that you apply in each case. Within morality, you, have, you don't have this middle distance guideline. Instead, you have a, a very universal general principle, do what's right and good, let's say, or be holy, don't indulge in physical things too much or however you take that. Those are the super general principles. And then by a bunch of super applied uh, principles that, that, or super applied interpretation of the scenario at hand. Um, so that, that's, the, that's what the Flimishrasadin is. It's about taking super general principles, applying them in specific situations in a way where the law couldn't cover it. The law isn't gonna get every situation. There's gonna be loopholes. There's gonna be workarounds. There's gonna be exceptions to the law. And if you wanna fulfill, if you wanna do the right thing, which is the, goal, the law's ultimate goal, you sometimes need to work not through law, but through ethics, through morality, through lifnim, mishras adin. But that's ultimately what God wants as well. That's also part of what Torah expects. It's not in the halacha, because it can't be. It's impossible to govern every situation, which is what the Ramban actually says there as well. So that's, that's the, essentially that's the view of, of Rav Lichtenstein here. Ethics comes from the Torah. It's mandated by this principle, by this, this principle slash mitzvah of lifnimish rasad, in the obligation to, to do the right thing, even when it's not part of the law, even if it's not part of the halacha. And that's not a problem per se. The reason why it wasn't codified is because certain things can't be codified. There are certain, you can always, there are always a workaround for the law. Um, my wife's a lawyer, so I, I know this. Uh, no, we, we, try to, we try to be ethical too. But, um, but uh, there's always a workaround for the law. And, uh, and the question is, if you're, if you're ethically motivated, you'll make sure to do the right thing, even in the face of that. And we'll just, we'll close with the conclusion here, and then we'll have questions. Um, just with the citation from page 83 that gives the overall picture of Rav Lichtenstein's view, traditional halachic Judaism demands of the Jew both adherence to halacha and commitment to an ethical moment that, though different from halacha, is nevertheless of a piece with it. So separate in some ways, but really part of the same bigger picture, and in its own way, fully imperative, right? Not quite as imperative as halacha, but also imperative. What I reject emphatically is the position that, on the one hand, defines the function and scope of halacha in terms of the latitude implicit in current usage. To say halacha means something you can look up in a sefer, to say both that, and yet identifies its content uh, with the more restricted sense of the term. Right? To say that halacha is both things you can look up in a book and the only thing that's binding, then you have a problem, because you're saying that ethics are not binding unless they're already codified in halacha. That's a problem. The resulting equation of duty and din and the designation of super-legal conduct as purely optional or pietistic is a disservice to halacha and ethics alike. And uh, uh, well, the, the final paragraph of the article, in dealing with the subject, I have an effect, address myself both to those who, misconstruing the breadth of its horizons, find the halachic ethic inadequate, 
right? People who say halacha ignores ethics and therefore halacha is, is a problem. And to those who smugly regard its narrow confines as sufficient. It's also disagreeing with people who say halacha doesn't include ethics and that's great. Don't do ethics, right? Both of those approaches are wrong. That's not, they're misunderstanding halacha. Halacha or they're misunderstanding Judaism. Judaism includes not just halacha but beyond. Um, and uh, does tradition recognize an ethic independent of halacha? It really depends on how you define your terms, right? So this, this add-on piece of ethics to halacha, it's not quite halacha, it's sort of part of it, but not exactly. So is it independent of halacha or not? That's an open question. Is it binding? It certainly is binding. That's, that's Rav Lichtenstein's view. Ethics are binding, not quite as halacha, as some sort of add-on to halacha based on the principle of lifnimish rasadin. Now there are some hands, yes. So that's a that's a great question, and and you can you can really ask, you know, sort of a, a double edged question because what we're talking about here is an add on to Allah. Allah is binding in this set of cases. There may be another another set of cases where ethics are are binding. What about when there's a clash? What about when the Torah says do something, but it seems like an ethical problem? Well, what do you do? What do you do then? Right. So this this is a great question. And it doesn't come up in this article. Not only does it not come up in this article, if you look throughout Rav Lichtenstein's writings, he, as much as he can, avoids that question. He's, he's unwilling to take a stance, which I think is, is very telling because often you, know, you have people who, I guess what you would say, in their more pietistic or publicistic moments, right? they would say, this is the ultimate loyalty test. And isn't it great? Halacha clashes with morality and we just, you know, we sort of put you on the line. That's, that's not his view. I, I, don't, I can't see, I, I see Rav ever saying that you shouldn't keep the halacha. That's not, that simply would not be him. But at the same time, um, you know, those cases of conflict are real, are real problems because ethics at some level is also binding. And, and there has to be, something has to give. Um, there has to be some misunderstanding, but it would be impossible that there would, that there would be a conflict. So that's, you know, I think that, that, that uh, responds to your question but it also shows the, the strength of the, of the conviction in, behind this position. Um, yeah, that's your isn't, isn't this all kind of a distinction without a difference? In the sense that if you look at all the different opinions that are collected within the source sheet and beyond the source sheet, there's a lot of discussion about how do you define halakha, how do you define ethics, when you're talking about not clashing, when you're talking about this level beyond. But if you take the sources, if you take the Bahar Lechtenstein and you put in opposed to the Bartonura, for example. We're not there yet, but yeah. But if you argue that halakha, that ethics is subsumed within halakha, there's not necessarily a practical difference that comes out from that. Like you could, I, you could easily imagine a world where the Bahar Lechtenstein and the Bartonura are sitting together debating about whether or not there's something called ethics beyond halakha. But then when you go through a list of practical examples about what you're supposed to do in certain situations, they would agree 100% of the time. So, so okay, I, I, exercise? yeah, um, it's an interesting question. Um, it's a question that I think it would only be fair to ask after we, we see the other views. But I, I think and it's hard, you know, and it's hard to flesh this out. My sense is the theoretical disputes certainly do correlate to, to real world examples. I can just, you know, I can throw out a couple of examples from Rav Lichtenstein's life where he took unpopular public stances on ethical issues relating, let's say, to the Israeli government and, and whatnot. So it does play itself out. It's not just a coincidence that this, someone who has, who has strong uh, views on ethics is willing to have them play out um, when, other, when other rabbis who have different views on ethics don't. But it's a good question, but I think we don't really have time to address it fully. Um, I'll take a couple more questions and then we'll go forward. Yes. I take people and ethics and violate 
So I, um, I guess you're you, right. I don't want to spend too much time in this because we're limited very quickly. The, the, the understanding that you have to do it and intend to do it because of Ava, not out of ethics, I think Rebellion rejects, uh, if I understand, if I, I think spoke about it or Amber wrote about it. Um, that's an example where you find within Halakha, you find a loophole to be able to accommodate ethics. But what about when you don't have the loophole? And that's a real question. But certainly if you can find the loophole, um, then use it and, uh, and do it not just because, not just because you, you, you know, not because of the, you, you have to do it, but because it's also the right thing to do. Um, uh, last question, then we'll move forward. Yeah. You say that uh, Rabban was a political and uh, never had to take a position where there was a conflict between Halakha and ethics? Did I didn't say that, that no. I said it was, it was a real, he never, in, in any of his writings, never, never said what to do uh, in that situation. Um, yes, the question was whether Rav Lichtenstein never took a stance on uh, anything involving halakha and ethics. The response was, um, I'm sure he did, but he never wrote about it. Um, let's, let's move on to, uh, let's move on to, with our remaining time, we'll skip the related views where there's some interesting things about um, uh, natural morality and, and Torah not superseding previous obligations of ethics and something close to what we heard in the previous year about halacha as training people to act ethically. We're going to skip all that, unfortunately, but really, uh, it, it, it is my gift to you, uh, to, you know, and feel free to study those sources in your spare time. Um, we'll jump to oppositional views because there's nothing like a good, a good machlokas. So, um, so a, a, as we saw at the beginning of Rebellion's piece, he sort of notes at the beginning, there's two different ways one could argue more or less complete with his approach, be totally out of, outside. One is, one is to reject the idea that halacha is, is binding. And uh, Eugene Barwitz, a, uh, passed away also just a few years ago, a reform uh, theologian, took that stance in, in, in an article much, much longer than the short uh, quote we have here, where he, he argues that you know, there are various ways in which halacha and ethics clash, and halacha doesn't deal with ethical issues, and the proper move is just to, to adopt ethics and to say that, that that's, the primary, um, that's the primary obligating norm, normative system, and halacha is not, and maybe you can keep halacha if you want, but halacha is not the primary thing that binds us. Um, ethics becomes that. So that's the, that's the approach it's taken. And the quote here is, you know, if, if you really think that, that rabbinic teachings um, are, the halacha is ethical, at least under certain interpretations, so why don't you embrace it and say that it's binding? Why don't you take Rav Lichtenstein's view that halacha is binding? And there are other obligations. And his response is, to many Jews today, the Torah's ethical behests come with some, such imperative quality that they can consider them properly heard only when they are accepted categorically. It's sort of all or nothing in halacha, to qualify their functioning as substantially as we as do the spokesmen of contemporary rabbinic Judaism must be seen by them as requiring less than what God now demands of the people of Israel. So in his view, if you accept halacha with all of its, with its problems, you won't be able to incorporate ethics. The halacha would sort of take over, and uh, he's, that's why he takes that position. Again, that's obviously one approach. A, uh, you know, I guess you call it an antinomian or an anti-halachic, uh, anti-binding halacha view. Uh, that, uh, that, that Eugene Barwitz took on one side. We'll now spend some more time on the, on the other side, of, uh, on the other side, which is the view also foreshadowed in the beginning of the article that um, not that, not that halacha, not, not that ethics sort of override halacha, but that uh, halacha is not about ethics at all. It's nothing, not do, nothing to do with values. Halacha is just a set of rules that one has to do, and the Torah doesn't care at all about ethics. That's just not of interest. Uh, to the Torah at all. That's not of interest to Judaism. So one source that often gets quoted is source 18 here, the uh, Bartanur, which was referenced in one of the questions before. Uh, this is the Bartanur's introduction to Pirkei Avos. Pirkei Avos, uh, often translated as ethics of the fathers, but probably just means chapters of the fathers. But anyway, so um, it, uh, about ethical issues, of course. Moshe Kibbal Torah Misinai, that's the first Mishnah. So he says, he says, Omerani, most of the Mishnah is talking about mitzvos, right? This is the one tractate of Mishnah that's not really about mitzvos. It's about something else. It's all about ethics and character uh, traits, character virtues. Right? So, 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 so
Ketzad Yitznaig Adam Imchavero. And if you look outside of Judaism, other religions, other thinkers have all sorts of ethical writings and uh, uh, writings about virtue um, that they came up with themselves. It's not from Revelation. That's why, of all the Masechtas of Mishnah, this one starts with the transmission from Sinai, right? Moshe got the Torah from Sinai, gave it to Yeshua, Yeshua to the Nabiim, etc., all the way down to the rabbis. Why does this tractate out of all the tractates start with that? Because, Lomer Lecha, Shamidos Nemusarim, Shabazo Masechta, Lobadu Osam Kachme Amishna Miglibam, Ela Af Elu Nemru Besinai. That teaches you the fact that we start with the transmission that. Everything that's in Avos, it's not made up. It's not, it's not you know, thought of by the rabbis themselves as philosophy. It's received traditions. It's revelation. It's Torah just as much as the laws of Heya or Kilayim or Shabbos or whatever else would be, would be from, from God, part of the revelation from God. And that's why, uh, that's why we start with the transmission. So this, this uh, statement is often adopted as a way of saying that the only thing that's binding in terms of ethics is things that are in, you know, in halachic sources, such as the Mishnah of Avos, which, I mean, I guess the question is how exactly to apply that. But more frequently, you look in halachic sources, you look in the Shulchan Aruch, the commentaries in the Shulchan Aruch, etc. You look in the Gemara, you figure out your ethics from there. Um, we're going to, uh, that, that approach is taken by Rabbi J. David Fleich, um, actually also a teacher of mine in source number 21, where, uh, where, he, uh, he cites Bartanura, and um, in, in the bottom paragraph on the page, does Judaism recognize a subjective morality? Is there room in Judaism for accommodation of the moral demands advanced by individual conscience? Which, if you read Rav Luchensin's article, how would you, what would you answer? Yes. And he says, to that question, the answer must be an emphatic no. The question is unequivocally answered in the negative by Ravadi Bartanura that we just saw um, so, yeah, skipping down a bit, the content of a system of ethics of this nature is not only objective rather than subjective, but is accurately speaking merely a subcategory of halacha. Ethics has to be codified in halachic sources for it to be binding. Actually, in this article, Rav Leich says, of course, Rav Lichtenstein must agree with him. Um, so he must have a different reading of the article. But um, that's, that's worth spending uh, reading it in, uh, in closer detail. Um, and then he says, is there natural morality that can be discovered by reason? Maybe there can be, but it won't be binding. And uh, maybe once one studies enough halacha, one can understand the overall morals or ethics of halacha and apply them. And that he's willing to accept. And that's what he calls, uh, that's what he calls uh, Das Torah. So the only, the only ethic independent of halacha he's willing to accept is Das Torah. Great Torah uh, scholars can internalize enough about Torah that they can apply it to other areas. But you know, for this idea of, of subjective, uh, subjective morality, if someone just saying this seems wrong, he's unwilling to accept that. As was mentioned, we did not get into questions of the conflict between halacha and ethics. Um, one, one, Rav Lichtenstein himself doesn't talk about it. Moshe Halbertal, student of Rav Lichtenstein's, has a book, very interesting book, Interpretive Revolutions in the Making, where he argues that Chazal, in some places, uh, utilize ethical concerns as, as part of their interpretive hermeneutic. So the way that they understand halacha, understand psukim, uh, is based in some cases on their ethical intuitions. One of his examples uh, is like the Ben Soru Amore, the rebellious son who gets killed. So the Gemara says it never happened. It has these very difficult to achieve standards. Halbertal argues that that's um, due, to ethical, due to ethical concerns. So that's an interesting Interesting approach, and it's sort of, in a sense, taking Reluchensin's thought a step further, a step that he himself did not take. Uh, there's more to say on this topic. There's, uh, I have some thoughts on what Re uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik's view is on this, Reluchensin's teacher and father-in-law, and he actually has an article or gave a talk that was recently published relating to the same issue months apart from when Reluchensin gave his talk that was the basis of the article. We don't have time to get into it, unfortunately. But uh, I guess uh, feel free to, to study that and, and consider what the Rub's view might be. Just to, to sum up, we saw in the Gemaras, there are at least a possibility of reading the Gemaras as, as showing that there's some ethical principle that's obligatory beyond halacha. And uh, I think in the second case, one thing that was very interesting was this focus on doing God's will, right? Uh, that that uh, Pinchas Ben Yair says, I'm doing God's will. The river says, no, I'm doing God's will. I shouldn't yield to you. 
And maybe that's the right way of framing this. And, and that this may fit well with Rev Lichtenstein's view as well. That, that at the end of the day, the, the goal, the ultimate arbiter of one's actions shouldn't be halakha. Halakha is part of it. But maybe the ultimate arbiter should be doing God's will. And doing God's will is a lot broader than halakha. It includes things like ethics as well, assuming, assuming that you can demonstrate that. And Rav Lichtenstein uh, made a very strong argument, uh, and I think uh, you know, well-cited in, uh, uh, in that direction, that one can have, have halakha, one can have ethics, and have the two build on one another, have the ethics come out of the halakha, but also come, uh, come as part of this broader idea of, uh, of doing God's will. And although there's, uh, uh, there's objection to that on both sides, I certainly, uh, you know, this article for me certainly uh, is a very, uh, is a very powerful, powerful idea that when we're, you know, halacha is not to the exclusion of ethics. It's, it's a part of it. it. It's the basis of it. And ethics come out, comes out of, comes out of halacha and certainly comes out of our broader obligations as serving God. Thank you all. And the uh, Freilich and Hanukkah. Okay, I just wanted to thank Rabbi Zukier, thank uh, Zager and uh, Professor Reinhold in his absence. Thank him as well. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm hoping we can do more events like this and uh, bring more Torah to the uh, community. Risha and Wicked Square Synagogue partnered on this particular event. Stay tuned for other events. Thank you very much. I thought today's session raised some very uh, important questions that we I really didn't have a chance to fully explore about 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 halacha in in uh, in 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 particular. I think there are sort of implicit questions to be raised about halacha that have emerged from these uh, sessions. Maybe in the future we can pursue that further. Thank you once again.